Everybody, it is the Christmas edition football Friday of Jamal About Sports, December twenty second, twenty seventeen. Kicking us off, I believe it is now a tradition with the waitresses Christmas wrapping. I am your host, as always, Jamal Hayden. Got a big show to get to football Friday, also some NBA, but we also begin with the New York Mets. And I wish it could be good news. Of course, it is not as is often the case with this somewhat star-crossed franchise, to put it kindly. Um, And let's see, there's just a lot to unpack here. So the the big picture is that we've had the off-season winter meetings come and go. Uh, We've seen their crosstown rivals, the Yankees, acquire Mike Stanton for nothing more than essentially taking on his contract. Um. Mike Stanton, a transformational player. I think I said it on a show a few weeks ago. Um, Of course, the Mets were not even into it. Weren't even in on the discussion. And Sandy Alderson made a very funny quip that, well, why would we need Mike Stanton, or sorry, Giancarlo Stanton now, um, when we have Brandon Nimmo? To which I would say, well, first of all, um, nice to make fun of your own player, dum-dum. Um, and guess what, Sandy? You haven't built up enough credibility. You don't have enough equity with the fan base to be making such quips. One World Series appearance in your seven years here and another play-in wild card game does not a dynasty make. So you don't get to make funny quips about the Mets' complete and utter inactivity when it comes to actually trying to change your franchise and produce a consistent winner. Consistent. Not years like 2015 when you make one big trade to get Cespedes and everything breaks right for you and you have Daniel Murphy go on an otherworldly run in the playoffs, a guy that you couldn't wait to run out of town, by the way. And listen, I'm on record as saying I was never a big Daniel Murphy guy, but I don't get paid to make decisions about who gets to stay and who gets to go with the Mets. Okay, guy you couldn't wait to run out of town, good riddance, and now he's an MVP candidate every year for the Nationals, your, your top rival, All right, and you made it to the World Series, great. The following year, you, you, you took advantage of a terrible schedule, an easy schedule down the stretch, filled with games against the tanking Reds and Phillies to squeak into the second wild card and lost the wild card playing game at home. That's not exactly Yankee-like dynasty. It's not Nationals consistency. I know the Nationals haven't won a playoff series, but they've been in the playoffs three of the last four years or four out of the last five. Forget about the Cardinals. God forbid we as Mets fans would ever expect the same measure of success that the Cardinals have almost every year, where a bad year for the Cardinals is 83 wins. 
No, we're essentially, as Met fans, we're the Padres. We are the Pirates. We're a mid-market team that's also poorly run. The Mets operate on a shoestring budget. I understand the last couple of years their payroll has been commensurate with where they are in the marketplace. That's fine. And I understand the Madoff thing. How much longer are we going to keep using the Madoff scandal as an excuse? That was in 2008. In a week from now, it'll be 2018. That's 10 years. And again, you can get by without having to have the highest payroll. I'm not saying that necessarily payroll equals wins. It equals competitiveness, though. Yes, the Yankees have only won World, won World Series since 2009. But guess what? They're in the playoffs almost every damn year. Since since 2000. Well, forget about 2000. Since 95. So, we have that. The Mets' big move was Anthony Swarzak, uh, a former failed starter who had a career year last year as a reliever. His numbers were very good, but he's, I think, 31 or 32 years old. And that was a bet, the, the, the Mets' big move. In the offseason. And now Sandy, there, there is dumpster diving. Maybe peeking in on Adrian Gonzalez, 36 years old, coming off a back injury, whose numbers, power numbers have been on the decline for the last four years. Where, while Matt Adams, who's 29, whose power numbers have been on the, uh, on the incline for the last four years, just got signed by the Nationals for a whopping $4 million one-year deal. But he couldn't help the Mets. To be a caretaker for Dominic Smith if he's not the guy at first base. And or worst case scenario could also play some outfield for you. And the Mets second best player Michael Conforto coming off a major shoulder injury. And given the Mets track record with injuries, certainly no reason to expect him to be ready for opening day, let alone June 1st. I haven't signed Adrian Gonzalez. They're, they're sniffing around. I don't even want Adrian Gonzalez. Who cares? Yeah, maybe it was five years ago I want Adrian Gonzalez. Not now. Plus, he's only a first baseman. It gives them no position flexibility whatsoever. And yet the Mets ownership and front office can't understand why Mets fans are so enraged right now with this team. That they've announced, through the general manager, by the way, of course the cowardly owners never come out of hiding to say anything to their fans. The general manager has announced that the Mets are reducing the payroll by $20 million. Why? Because you had one bad year last year? You're telling me you didn't make money in 2015 and in 2016? You have your own network for crying out loud? And again, if you can't afford or you don't want to spend the money, then get rid of this little vanity project of yours, Fred Wilpon. I know it's your nice nostalgic tie to the past of days gone by when you were a little boy and you watched the Dodgers. That's great for you. Stinks for the rest of us. Then you had, I mean, this has been some week. Then you had Steve Phillips, of all people, disgraced former general manager of the Mets, coming to the Wilpons defense saying, you know, I don't understand. What would you do if you lost millions of dollars? Well, if the Wilpons, you know, in, in, in reference to the Madoff thing, um, if they're so destitute, how do they still own the team, Steve? 
and their mansions and their yachts and everything else. Okay? And oh, they want to win. Of course they want to win. They want to win in the sense that everybody would prefer to win than to lose, of course. But they don't really want to win. It doesn't drive them. It doesn't burn them. Because if it did, then they would take steps to fix it. Sandy Alderson has done a horrendous job since he has been here. He has he himself has admitted that the reason the Mets can't make any trades right now because they can't sign anybody because they're reducing the payroll by 20 million. So they can't get anybody of note who might actually cost something. Yet they can't make any trades for like say Manny Machado who the Orioles insanely put up on the trading block. Because they don't have the prospects. Well, Sandy Olsen, you've been here for seven years. What have you been doing? Let's see. You have no stars on your team except Cespedes. And, you, and your minor league uh, system is barren. So what exactly has he done? So you had that. It's Steve Phillips coming to the Will Pond's defense. He of all people, by the way. Then you had an article in the Post yesterday saying that Fred Wilpon was irate and pissed off when the Yankees got Mike Stanton and that he follows the Yankees. As if, as if this happens in a vacuum? As if he doesn't have the control or the wherewithal to do something about this? If you're so mad, Fred, then why don't you tell Sandy to pull, you know, open up the, 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 the pocketbook and the wallet and go trade for, Mike, uh, for Giancarlo Stanton? Boy, I keep calling him Mike Stanton. Well, he used to go by Mike Stanton, so I'm not completely off. So then you had that, which, by the way, who knows what PR mole planted that story in the post. Is it that's supposed to fool the Mets fans and thinking that Fred Wilpon cares? Apparently, there's two adages the Wilpons have never heard. You have to spend money to make money, and actions speak louder than words. And now... Just as it's almost as if they're trolling the Mets fans. What did the Mets announce today? That they've rehired Omar Minaya as a special assistant to Sandy Alderson. <laughs> I mean, is that the most Mets thing ever to do? When your fan base is at its most frustrated, its angriest, you've signed absolutely nobody, you've made no trades, you've done nothing to indicate to your fans that you're going for it next year and that you expect to be a contending team. What do you do? You hire the guy you fired seven years ago for incompetence, basically. Because otherwise, why, would he still, why wouldn't he still be here? And I understand all the baseball writers love Omar. He's a gregarious guy. And yes, he does have a track record as, as a good scout. The Mets did bring in Matt Harvey under his watch. They brought in Jacob DeGrom under his watch. Okay. He did build some decent teams in 2005 and six, mostly through free agents, a couple of trades. But at the end, need I remind everybody about the Tony Bernazard incident when then Omar accused Adam Rubin, at that point a writer, of planting that story because he wanted to get hired by the Mets? And then Elmar had to go on a little sabbatical while the Phillies got Cliff Lee right under the Mets' noses for nothing from the Indians. Shouldn't say nothing. They did get Salazar, I think, or Carrasco, rather, in that trade. But whatever. So, again, is it in the big picture, is it the worst thing that Omar is back maybe in a role that's better suited for his talents, not as the face or one of the faces of a franchise 
with his quote unquote syntax issues. <laughs> And maybe not running an, an entire team, but maybe where he, he, he is best suited for him. That's fine, I guess. I mean, we couldn't find somebody else, though. There's hundreds of guys out there. That's the He's the only guy that could do that job. But okay, but the timing is terrible. I mean, I would call this organization tone deaf, although I think that would be an insult to people who are tone deaf. I mean, it's incredible. And look, I get it, okay? You don't make major decisions like who you hire as a manager and what make trades you make and, and player personnel moves. I get you don't do that based on what, all, what the fans want all the time. I understand that. But guess what? Remember in 97 when the fans were clamoring for the Mets to trade for Mike Piazza? And of course, Will Pons didn't want to do it. And Nelson Doubleday, R.I.P., who was still one of the owners of the Mets at the time, the only person to keep them in check, went and said, no, 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 no. We got to get this guy. How'd that work out? Did that work out okay for you guys? You made the playoffs in 99, you made the World Series in 2000 and generated a ton of excitement. You were relevant again. You had a scrappy little team with Valentine as the manager. You needed a star to put you over the top and they went out finally, but it was pulling teeth as always. By the way, also, Omar and I, he of the Jason Bay signing. So, I get it. You can't let the fans' discontent necessarily rule your way of doing business. I get it. But, can, I mean, but you also have to have some respect for your fans. And again, if there's some major financial calamity that has befallen the team, then tell us. We'll understand. Just be straight with your fan base. Explain, look, X, Y, and Z have happened. Unfortunately, we would like to spend more money, but we can't. They don't tell you that. People are reasonable. We'll understand if you give us a reason. But staying silent and hiding in your ivory tower or your mansion in uh, Manhasset is not going to do the job. Or Sands Point or wherever the hell it is they live. But yet they wonder, why such vitriol? Why such anger? Well, this is why. And then, to make matters worse, your crosstown rivals go and get the, the MVP, who hit 50-something home runs to pair with their own young star, who just hit 50-something home runs. And your biggest division rival, the Nationals, always make moves every year. And other than 2015, have surpassed you consistently for the last five years. Even the Phillies, who are still in tank mode, went out and made a, a big signing and signed Carlos Santana to play first base for $20 million a year. And this is the time for the Mets to go for it. Other than the Nationals, the rest of that division is not very good. The Marlins are in full-on fire sale mode. The Braves are a mess still. And the Phillies aren't all that good. And yet they sit there and wait and wait and wait and twirl their thumbs and don't communicate anything to their fans. So the Mets' big plan is we got new medical trainers now, and so all the pitchers that were hurt, they're all going to be healthy this year. They're all going to make 30 starts, and they're all going to go 15 and 10 or better. That's the big plan. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I hate to start the Christmas show off on such a dour note, 
uh, or Dürer, as my mom might pronounce it. But um, I, I just I had to say something. I mean, it just it never ends with this team, and and they are their own worst enemy. All right, we're going to take a short break. We'll be back with some football right after this. It was Christmas Eve, in the drunk tank. An old man said to me, won't see another one. And then I sang a song, the rare old mountain tear. I turned my face away and dreamed about you. And we are back on our Christmas show of Jamal about sports. That, of course, was the classic fairy tale of New York by the Pogues featuring the late, great Kirsten McCall. All right, we are back. We will get to some football. We'll start with the NFL and uh, also lots to get to here. So two weeks left to go. Uh, several playoff uh, appearances yet to be decided. Uh, we'll start in the NFC where my lines are holding on by a thread. Uh, the, 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 the formula for them is pretty simple. They need to win out. So they've got the Bengals this week. Bengals, I believe, have been outscored 62-14 to 14 in their last two games. Uh, reports that Marvin Lewis may not be back next year. Uh, they seem to have mailed it in. Um, you know, that always scares me, though. Uh, these guys have pride. Um, you know, they, 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 they're playing probably not only for maybe a job with their own team, but for a job for another team next year. Um, so, of course, I'm always worried uh, when it comes to Lions anyway. But you would think, you would think that the Lions could get this game. And under Caldwell, when they play teams with 500 uh, record or worse, they're like, 32-4 and four or something. Now, they've not done very well against the teams with good records in the Caldwell era, but what that tells you and what that is that they have been good at beating the teams they are quote-unquote supposed to beat. So, the formula for them is they got to win out at Cincinnati this week, home against Green Bay without Aaron Rodgers uh, on New Year's Eve day, and then they need Atlanta to lose their last two games, which could happen. Because Atlanta plays Carolina and New Orleans. And Carolina and New Orleans are both still playing for stuff. Nobody, nothing's been decided in the NFC South. Right now, New Orleans would be the division winner. Carolina and the Falcons would be the first and second wild card teams. Uh, the Rams would be the division winner in the West. The Seahawks would be out. The Cowboys would be out. The Lions would be out. Uh, and in the East, Philadelphia has already wrapped it up. So, Lions need... A lot of help, eh, seemingly. Look, the Lions were 9-4 last year and lost out. If you were a team rooting against the Lions, you probably didn't think that was going to happen. They had a hard schedule, right? They played the Giants at in the Meadowlands. Sorry, at MetLife. They played the Cowboys in Cowboyland, and then they played the Packers at home. Um, now, they still got into the playoffs vir- by virtue of tiebreakers and, and the like and were the sixth seed and lost to the Seahawks. We know that. Um, so, is it looking promising? No. Is it impossible? Certainly not. And the Falcons have been skating by, winning kind of ugly. They squeaked by on Monday night against a bad Tampa Bay team 
who, you know, it's interesting. The week before, the Lions beat Tampa Bay, and all the Detroit Riders, and myself included, fans included too, were, oh, you know, a very unimpressive win. I wonder if they're doing the same thing in, in, in Atlanta. Are they, are they, are they, are we now rating wins? I mean, seriously, I, and I fall victim to it too. Who am I to be rating Lions wins? It's the Lions. I should be thrilled anytime they win a game. It's not like we've had this recent rash of success where I've been spoiled. So a win's a win. I mean, yes, I understand if you're trying to evaluate this and put them in perspective as to where their place is amongst the other teams. Yeah, I get it. I understand. We're not as good as the other teams. I get that. Okay. I'm well aware. The interesting thing will be if the Lions win their last two games but still don't make the playoffs, do they keep Caldwell or not? And whereas three weeks ago I would have said it's it's a no-brainer to get rid of him, it might be. You better make sure you get the right guy. Because he will have had three out of four winning seasons. The last coach to do that for the Lions is Wayne Fonz. Um. And the one season that they didn't win, that was the Hail Mary Aaron Rodgers game, which they're partly to blame for that because the coaching staff didn't have the right defense in there. So it's not like they get a pass. But I've said it before, I'll say it again. And I just added another little nugget to his resume if you want to look at it that way. They beat the teams they're supposed to beat. I mean, look, in the old days, the Lions would be the exact opposite. They'd go out and beat the 49ers on Monday night or beat the Cowboys on Monday night, but then they'd lose to a team with a worse record than them. Now, those teams were super talented. They had Barry Sanders, Herman Moore, Brett Perriman, Chris Spielman, Jerry Ball, George Jamison, Melvin Jenkins, Benny Blades. I mean, those were really good Lions teams. And they probably underachieved, to be fair. But they beat the teams they're supposed to beat under Caldwell. Team plays hard. Team loves the guy. They do. But is that enough? And that's 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 Bob Quinn's charter. That's what he was brought here to do. Came from the Patriots, right? They're all business over there. No sentimentality in New England, right? Cold, calculating. The only guy who's got a job for life there is number 12. Everybody else is replaceable and expendable. You've seen it a million times with them from Ty Law to, you know, uh, Dion Branch to Teddy Bruschi. Uh, to Will Fork, it doesn't matter. Logan Mankins, I mean, they will they will broom you. Loyal Malloy, I mean, goodbye. Adios. The second they think you're not as good as you once, once were, you're gone. You're out the door. Now, the coach, of course, that doesn't apply to, and the quarterback it doesn't apply to. Everybody else, expendable, replaceable. The Lions could use a little of that. They've showed some signs of it, not enough for my taste. So it'll be very interesting to see. Um, so that's basically your playoff picture in the, in the NFC. I mean, you know, the NFC South, again, that division is up for grabs still. All these teams play each other. As a matter of fact, you've got this week you have, hold on. So let's see. We've got two games Saturday. Minnesota Green Bay game is meaningless now. You've got Detroit, obviously, at Cincinnati we talked about. Um Atlanta at New Orleans. So uh, New Orleans needs this game in the worst way. And then you've got Tampa Bay playing Carolina in Carolina. So let's assume Carolina is going to win that game. New Orleans needs to win that game to, to, to keep pace with Carolina for the division. 
And then the final week, you're going to have Atlanta. Is it Atlanta? Is Atlanta at Carolina or is it at home? I think it's at home. Let's go to the schedule for a second and see. Although Atlanta's not played great at home. Yeah, it's Carolina's at Atlanta. So you'd give them maybe a slight edge there, but certainly, again, not beyond the realm of possibility Atlanta could lose out. What will probably happen is the Lions will beat, will lose to the Bengals and then beat the Packers, or vice versa. They'll, lose, they'll beat the Bengals and give us all hope, and then they'll lose to the Packers with Brett Hundley at quarterback. And if that is, by the way, if that does happen, then I think the decision is very clear. If the Lions go 9-7, or I mean, if they lose out or go 9-7, uh, I think a coaching change is in order. So, and then in the AFC, you go over to the AFC, and, I mean, you've got, I mean, well, you know what, let's, 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 let's talk about the AFC, shall we? And let's talk about that, that abomination that took place in Pittsburgh on Sunday afternoon uh, between the Steelers and the Patriots. So, obviously, this is Friday. It's almost a week later. I'm sure you all saw the catch that wasn't. Um, uh, you know, again, everyone keeps saying, well, by the letter of the law, it's the right call. Uh, first of all, as a Lions fan, Pittsburgh fans, if any of you are listening, I feel your pain. Uh, they, they invented this rule basically in 2010 to screw the Lions, right, with the Calvin Johnson play. We know that. Um, and then... But that was that occurred in the end zone. It didn't survive the ground. Since when does it have to survive the ground? If you catch the ball in the field of play, have control, make a football move, dive over the goal line, and then the ball moves a little bit, that's not a touchdown. If it's a running back, the second the ball breaks the plane, it's a touchdown. But for a receiver, for some reason, running into the end zone, it's not, makes no sense. Makes absolutely no sense. And I don't think it was the correct application of the rule. Now, the NFL will sit there till it blew in the face and tell you it was. And if it is, it's the dumbest rule on the planet in all of sports. The whole thing needs to be fixed. Just go back to the way it was. I don't understand why anybody thought this was a good idea. This survived the ground rule. I remember, I've said it a million times, I'll say it again until I'm blue in the face. In the old days, you caught the ball in the end zone. The guy knocked the ball out of your hands. didn't matter. Play is over. If you came down with two feet in the end zone with possession of the ball, it was done. If you fell to the ground, the ball popped out, didn't matter. Done. Touchdown. Why they decided to go away from that, I have no idea. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And these stupid little esoteric rules around what a catch is and what... And isn't it amazing how all these esoteric rules always benefit the Patriots from the tuck rule to this nonsense to the to Austin Safarian Jenkins play in the Jets game earlier this season. But, 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 but by the way, Patriots fans, keep telling yourselves that the league has it in for you because of, oh, they were mean to Tom Brady for Deflategate. I mean, please. The league has done nothing but kiss your rear ends for, for the last 20 years. I mean, just stop it with this, this made-up narrative that all of a sudden the league has it in for you. Your whole dynasty was started on a rule nobody ever heard of. So, and then, in the Cowboys game on Sunday night, you have an index card used to determine whether or not a team, the, the Cowboys got a first down or not. 
And then when David Carr, sorry, Derek Carr is running in for perhaps maybe the game-winning touchdown, he tries to stretch the ball over, fumbles the ball, goes out of bounds, touchback. That rule, by the way, needs to change. It's the stupidest rule ever. If you fumble and the other team doesn't recover and it goes out of the back of the end zone, why does the other team get to get possession of the ball? The other team, the team who has possession of the ball originally, give them the ball but at the 20-yard line. That's fine. That's fair. I mean, I don't understand what the NFL is doing. You know, listen, probably they like this because guess what? Everyone's talking about it. It's all anybody talked about on Monday, on Tuesday, Wednesday. All anybody talked about. I mean, it's bad optics. It looks ridiculous that, hey, the NFL, is your new slogan going to be index cars and esoteric rules as to what a catch is and isn't? It's fantastic. I mean, geez. But that's it. That's the NFL. That's what we're reduced to these days. Plus all the nonsense around, you know, the, the, the supposed player safety initiatives, right? So Gronkowski only got one game for his thuggery. Thomas Davis got two for blindside blocking a guy. Look, it was a bad play. Ten years ago, everybody used to do it. Warren Sapp did it worse to Chad Clifton when the, uh, the Packers tackle, and I think pretty much ruined the guy's career and was 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 celebrated for it basically. But okay, I understand. I'm willing to accept things change. This is a new day. We have more data. We have more information. We understand the ravages of CTE and that concussions probably lead to that, if not probably almost certainly do. So I'm all for these things. But you have to explain to me how when a guy makes a block in the in the course of the action of a game, that's a two-game suspension. When a 275-pound guy jumps on top of a 185-pound guy who's lying out of bounds on the sidelines and the play's over, that's only one-game suspension. Explain this to me. Now, Davis appealed the suspension. It got reduced to one game. He got a two-game suspension with two games to go. And he's still going to miss one of, of you know a very important game. Now you want to give him a game suspension. That's fine. You want to make that play a four game suspension. So you want to get it out of the, out of the sport entirely. That's fine with me too. Have some consistency. You need consistency and uniformity along these rules or across these rules. I should say. You don't get to make it up based on what team you like better. And of course, the league would say, "No, we never do that." Uh huh. Okay. Except there's all kinds of evidence that you do and that it's arbitrary. All right. College football, you know, the games have started. The bowl games have not been very good. It's, it's these, you know, I, I wouldn't even say mid-major teams. They had Florida Atlantic beating the hell out of Akron and Lane Kiffin, of course, because that's what Lane Kiffin does, running up the score. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> by the way, funny story about that. So I'm out with my buddy John Tuesday night, uh, and we're sitting there at, at a bar waiting to meet some buddies for a little boys' night Christmas dinner. And uh, they show Lane Kiffin on the, uh, we're watching, they got Sports Center on in the background. They show Lane Kiffin, you know, running out of the tunnel, you know, doing his thing with his face. And John's like, oh, that, that guy is so annoying. He's the absolute worst. 
I, I, I think I, I got a bet on Akron, and they were laying a big number. It was like 23 and a half. And I, said, I was tempted to do it, too. And I said, no, I got to stay away. I got to stay away. I said, because you know he will run the score up. I said, first of all, Akron's not very good. And, of course, I would know that because I'm a loser, and I watch Maction, <laughs> the Mac League games. And so they're not even very good for their own league. I think they were like a 6-6 six and six team. Um, and I just knew it. I mean, that's what Lane Kiffin does. He runs the score up. So good for you, Lane. You're, you're quite a prince. So you've had that game. Right now you've got the Wyoming game. The only reason I watched that game in the famous Idaho Potato Bowl, Wyoming versus, uh, oh, criminy. Who are they playing? I forget. But is the Josh Allen, they're playing Central Michigan. you got Josh Allen, the uh, you know first-round quarterback prospect for Wyoming playing in that game. So earlier Ohio University, not Ohio State, Ohio located in lovely Athens, Ohio, beat up UAB, which is a nice story because UAB didn't have football for the last three years. It was their first year back having a football program, and they made a bowl game, so good for them. Unfortunately, they lost 41-6, to but you know, a nice little feather in their cap for that program to win eight games and get to a bowl game. You know, so... So the really good bowl games don't kind of really start until tomorrow. Um, you've got uh, Texas Tech versus South Florida. That's the game I'm looking forward to. It's going to be a uh, should be a massive shootout. Um, you know, there's a couple of other ones here and there. I mean, look, Ohio State USC. That's next Friday night. That'll be a great game to watch. Essentially, the Rose Bowl, even though it's not the Rose Bowl, it's the Cotton Bowl. But, you know, in the old days, you'd have the winner of the Pac-10 versus the winner of the Big Ten. Well, both those teams won their leagues. But, you know, with the new playoff system, the Bulls rotate as to what the semifinals and the finals are. The Rose Bowl is one of the semifinal games, I believe, this year. So, um, so yeah, we'll get into some more college stuff uh, on the next show. Not a ton to, to discuss right now there. And so that'll lead us into the final segment of the show, which is the NBA, which we hadn't talked about the NBA in the last couple of weeks, but I got to tell you, it's been pretty exciting lately. As a Knicks fan, uh, really nice win last night. We'll start with the Knicks beating the Cavaliers. Sorry, not beating the Cavaliers, beating the Celtics. And look, I understand the Celtics didn't have Jalen Brown. They had played a game the night before. Um, but, you know, the Knicks have been without Hardaway now for a while. Porzingis came back after missing a couple of games with an injury. He was awful, 0 for 11, scored one point, and the Knicks still won the game because Michael Beasley, former number two pick in 2008, who's been with, I think, seven or eight teams throughout his career, guy could always score, but he's a bit of a head case, a little wacky, a little loopy. Seems like he could finally maybe be figuring it out. I mean, he still commits some of the dumbest turnovers you'll ever see that make you scratch your head. But the guy can put the ball in the basket. And i got to give my buddy Mike Lantini, my Celtics insider, a lot of credit for that. He's been a big Beasley supporter all year. I have not. Uh, but I have to say, after last night's 32-12 and 12 game, to basically carry the Knicks home for a victory, pretty impressive. So the Knicks are 17-14 and 14 right now. I mean, look, we're not even halfway through the season yet, but and they've played a ton of home games. I think they're 15-5 and five now at home. Uh, let's actually check that out. They're going to play 16, I believe, out of their next 20 on the road. So, And they've only won two road games, and one of them was against the Nets, which is barely a road game. Um, let's take a look quick, shall we? Let's see. The Knicks are 15-5 and five at home and 2-9 and nine on the road. Currently in the eighth slot, I mean, again, it's too early probably to even be talking about this stuff, but let's, let's do it for fun. 
they're the eighth seed right now if the, if the playoffs started. The Pacers are the fourth seed. They also have 14 losses. The Knicks are a half a game. So, I mean, if you're looking at the, 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 the landscape of the East, you've got the Celtics off to the great start at 26-9. and nine. The Raptors, by the way, 22-8. and eight. Nobody's talking about them playing very well. Serge Ibaka has, done a, has, has had a nice little resurgence for them, by the way. I mean, you know about the great backcourt between Lowry and DeRozan. DeRozan, I think, had 45 last night in a win. But um, Raptors playing really well. Cavs, 24-9. And let's just get to the Cavs for a second. Uh, everybody had them dead and buried after about nine games. Um, then LeBron decided, okay, enough's enough. And, I mean, this guy is so great. I mean, that we just completely take his greatness for granted. If this were any other year, or if, if we hadn't gotten so used to his greatness, he would easily be, to me, the front runner for MVP. Remember, they don't have Isaiah Thomas yet. Haven't played a game with him. They've got a, a, a compromised and passes prime Dwayne Wade coming off the bench as a backup point guard. Uh, yes, Kevin Love's a nice player. Uh, they've started games with Jose Calderon at point guard or his cadaver. I'm not sure which. Um, you know, Jeff Green's an okay bench player for them. You know, they're still trotting out J.R. Smith and Iman Shumpert. Um, you know, they missed a bunch of uh, Tristan Thompson missed a bunch of games with injury. That, 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 you look at that Cavaliers roster and you're not exactly that jealous of it other than LeBron and maybe Love. Now, when they get Isaiah Thomas back, you would think that will make them that much better. It'll probably be an adjustment period for those guys to play together. Guess what? LeBron will figure it out. He'll be just fine. So all those LeBron haters out there, which I don't even understand why there are any, all the guy has done is lead an exemplary life on and off the court, basically, except for the one misstep when you know he took probably some bad advice, or even if he didn't, he's a grown man. You know what? Don't give him an out. Fine. When he made the decision, that was a bad look. That was also like 10 years ago or eight years ago, whatever it was. And he went back to Cleveland and he got them a championship. So I'd say he made up for it. I mean, listen, nobody disliked that whole situation more than I did. And that whole, you know, with Bosh, who never did a thing in his career before he got to Miami. And Wade and LeBron, you know, with their, their big, you know, celebratory opening press conference where they, you know, they walked on the stage. Listen, yeah, it, it, was, it was distasteful, for sure. Everybody get over it. Other than that, and by the way, if that's the worst thing LeBron ever did, it's pretty good. You've got the Pacers at 18 and 14. Interesting, Pacers, <laughs> really the, the interesting storyline so far this year, there are a couple, but one of them is the Oklahoma Thunder because you know they traded for Paul George and gave the Pacers Victor Oladipo, who's had a phenomenal year. Anybody who listened to my shows last year, you know I talked about him a lot as being the guy that needed to be that second piece you know, sort of the running mate to Russell Westbrook last year, times when he did do it, times when he didn't. So he's been great in Indiana, played his college ball in Indiana. And then they also got Don, uh, Dante Sabonis, Arvita Sabonis' son, who I also talked about last year, liked him coming out of Gonzaga. He's played, a really, played really well coming off the bench for the Pacers this year. So they're 18 and 14. The Knicks are 17 and 14. Obviously, we know about Carmelo, thank goodness going away. Oh, and by the way, how sweet was that? Game against OKC last Saturday night. 
Carmelo got off to a hot start, finished the game with 12 points on 5 for 18, and the Knicks pulled away, and he did absolutely nothing in the second half of that game. How great. And again, all this, all this hand-wringing and this hue and cry prior, how are the Knicks fans going to treat Carmelo when he comes back? You know, they did a video thing for him. I, I don't get it. Carmelo Anthony's not a Nick to me. Bernard King is a Nick. Patrick Ewing's a Nick. Mark Jackson is a Nick. Gerald Wilkins is a Nick. Those are the Knicks I grew up with. No, but seriously, Carmelo was a hired gun. Let's remember something, okay? Just because Carmelo didn't take the bait from, uh, you know, the, the beyond smug Phil Jackson last year, all right? Yes, you give him points, I guess, for not getting stooping to Phil Jackson's level, all right? And responding in kind with the cheap shots through the media. I get it. But let's remember something. Carmelo Anthony was the guy who forced his way out of Denver because he wanted to get paid. And he forced his way to the Knicks. And he played the Knicks and the Nets against each other. And dopey Jim Dolan took the bait and traded half the damn team to Denver. And what did it get the Knicks? Nothing. They won one playoff series since Carmelo was here. He was a hired gun who failed miserably at the job he was hired to do. He's not a Nick to me. And I'm not saying Carmelo's a bad guy. I said this last year. He's probably an okay guy. You know, he's gotten more active in, in social causes and stuff like that. That's fine. He's matured. He's grown up. That's great. Now, I'm not saying the Knicks fans need to boo him mercilessly last week either. To me, it's just meh. Completely ambivalent, really. Like, whatever. Guy was Again, I know he was here for seven years. Doesn't mean anything to me. Your length of time here means nothing. Wasn't drafted by the organization. Was brought in as a hired gun. Failed miserably. End of story. So, it's funny because OKC got Mello and Paul George back. And they currently are 16 and 15. Just got above 500. They're playing better lately, 7 and 3. But Westbrook is really carrying that team again right now. They're, now, they do play good defense, and Paul George is a big part of that. He's a good defensive player. <laughs> Clearly, Carmelo has nothing to do with that, but Paul George is. But I also think Billy Donovan is maybe not the greatest coach in the world. I mean, look at it. Uh, he had Oladipo last year. He had Cantor. He had uh, Sabonis. And he had McDermott. And, yes, they made the playoffs, but... You know, he was the same guy who couldn't figure out how to use Cantor in the playoffs last year. And look, I get it. Russell Westbrook is a unique, unique player. And not everybody can probably play with a guy like that. I understand that. He, he presents some challenges. I, I, I get that. But the guys they all got rid of are helping their teams big time right now. So I get it. It's a long season. We'll see how this all plays out in the end. But I just found it interesting that uh, right now this, the Thunder are sort of directly responsible for kind of the resurgences to a certain extent of both the Pacers and the Knicks. And then the other team that's actually pretty interesting lately, to me anyway, are the Bulls, who got off to a 3-20 and 20 start. They had this, you know, they had a massive fight in preseason between two of their players, Bobby Portis and uh, Nikola Miritich, to the point where Miritich's face, you know, broke a bone in his face. There are various reports as whether or not Miritich ch- sucker punched Portis first. 
uh, or if Portis sucker punched him. Some players seem to be on one guy's side. Some players need to be on another guy's side. Miritich said, if they don't trade Bobby Portis, I don't want to be on the team, then trade me. It was kind of a mess. And both players were out for a while. They finally, I guess, managed to, to make amends with one another. And since Miritich has come back, they had won seven games in a row before losing a close game to Cleveland last night. And Miritich, by the way, has played great since he's come back. He's had several 20-point games. Portis has played well. The guy who's really played well and made a big difference for that team is Chris Dunn, the young point guard out of Providence they got in, uh, in the um, Jimmy Butler-Taj Gibson trade to Minnesota last year. He's played really well for them lately. Plus, they drafted that kid, Laurie Markinen, who's played very well. they got a nice young core over there. Now, look, they probably dug themselves too deep of a hole. They're 10-21. and 21, But that's probably good for them because they probably want to get a high draft pick anyway. But I just find that to be interesting. They were 3-20. and 20. The Knicks, by the way, were one of the teams they lost to. Of course, I was all upset. So I'm like, how do you lose to that terrible team? But you know what? We'll see. Maybe they continue to make massive strides as the season goes on. It's a long year. A lot can happen between now, you know, there's 50 games left still. 51 games. So, anyway. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. I wish everybody out there a very healthy, happy, Merry Christmas, and happy and healthy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. We'll be back next week with another show. Probably on Tuesday, but until then, peace out.